0: Now, fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Good
1: afternoon and welcome. This week there will be funerals for three generations of one family, wiped out, apparently, because one of the veterans could not get help for his post-traumatic stress disorder. Ottawa will pay for the funerals, but it's not clear that the government will do anything else. Last week, Corporal Lionel Desmond was found dead, along with three members of his family, in a murder-suicide in Nova Scotia. Shortly after his death, news surfaced that he suffered from PTSD from his tour in Afghanistan and failed to get the help he needed at St. Martha's Regional Hospital in the town of Antigonish, just two days before he turned the gun on his family and on himself. Could the military have done anything different to prevent this from happening? We want to hear from you. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 866 uh, 740 Right now, let us go to the Department of National Defense Ombudsman, Gary Wellborn. Welcome.
2: Good morning, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm well, thank you.
1: Well, uh, what is your reaction to this terrible tragedy?
2: Well, it is It is exactly that, Libby. It's a tragedy, you know, a a very hard way to start off 2017. But, you know, I I do believe, uh, you know, you asked, could we do everything? Uh, Are we doing everything? I believe there's opportunity. Uh, I do believe if we could change a few things in what we do and how we process these people who are transitioning out of the military, I believe we could have a fundamental change. Last September, our office made a recommendation to the Department of National Defence that no Canadian Armed Forces member be released until all benefits and services from all sources that are required are put in place. I think that's a good start in the help mitigating these types of conversations that you and I are having today about this issue. I think if we could start down those roads, uh, doing some small incremental changes now, we can have a long-lasting positive uh, impact on this situation.
1: Do we know any more about what actually happen- happened? I mean, I, I'm—I mean, you know, I obviously we don't know what happened, but it sounds like he went to a hospital close to where he lives, and the hospital was full; they didn't have anyone to treat treat him. So, if that is in fact the case, how would uh, processing a vet have have mitigated that or helped that in any way?
2: Well, from uh, you know. the... From my position, it looks this way, uh, Libby. So the member presents themselves to the Canadian Armed Forces with a malady. When that happens, the Canadian Armed Forces, they really do do good work. The chief, uh, I mean, the Surgeon General's shop is responsible for providing health care for the member, whether it's physical or mental health care, either one. What I'm saying is, while the member's in uniform, they have this continuity of care. And prior to releasing them, have the continuity of care put in place so there is no break. There is a person that this uh, transitioning member can reach back to when they have a crisis or there is a need for information or whatever that may look like. But I'm saying if we had everything in place prior to relief, maybe there would be another relief valve that someone could use. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so what happens? Um, uh, somebody with PTSD is, is released and, and suddenly there is no access to any of the, the services that they may have had before their release,
2: well, it's much more complex than that, Libby. I mean, each case, in and of itself, has nuances uh, that that are just specific to that individual. You know, when a you know a transitioning member presents themselves, like I said, we uh, the Canadian Armed Forces provide the care they need as they're transitioning out. Uh, This is where sometimes we get into some difficulty, because the first thing that has to happen when they apply for benefits uh, with Veterans Affairs Canada or the insurer, they have to prove that their malady is related to service. And that can take up to four months for that adjudication to be done. Another recommendation that we've made is let the Canadian Armed Forces make that determination, because we have doctors who work inside the Canadian Armed Forces who could make that determination. Who doesn't know? It's done by Veterans Affairs Canada. So we take the medical information that we've amassed over the years that we've been treating this member, and we send it to Veterans Affairs and let them adjudicate to determine whether this illness or injury was related to service. I think we can get out of that. When we release a member, because they breach what's called, Libby and I don't want to get too technical here, but what's called universality of service. That means the person is not deployable, therefore not employable. So prior to release, the Surgeon General makes a determination that the member can or cannot continue in their vocation. And I think that determination in and of itself, we know when, where, and how the soldier was injured, I think that determination in of itself should be accepted by Veterans Affairs Canada as an automatic entry into their programs. So I think that, you know, right away we could start to shave back that service delivery time of 16 weeks. We could really re- reduce that down to now it's evaluation of what's the quality of life impact for this injury. So it's a different conversation.
1: Uh, there seem to be uh a lot of problems with veterans' affairs. There were promises about hiring more staff that has apparently not happened or only happened in a in a trickle uh you know i don 't want to get into if 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 two departments are kind of pointing the finger at each other, but f- from your perspective is is that where the problem lies
2: well I was formally, prior to taking this position, as a Deputy Ombudsman at Veterans Affairs, and I do have to say there is an Ombudsman for Veterans Affairs, a fellow by the name of Mr. Guy Parent.
1: Yep, we know him. But
2: but let me tell you where I come at this from when we talk about the service delivery model. You know, we're going to go out, Veterans Affairs is, and I'm speaking from, I'm looking at this from my position when the member is transitioning over. But Veterans Affairs Canada is going to go out and hire more people to do more of the same of what they've been doing. And I'll go back to my position is I think the service delivery model we currently have is broken. I don't think it's, you know, it it was intentional, but I think over the years, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and every time there was a theater of operation, we bolted on another piece. So I don't believe, I just think we have arrived here. But to hire more people to continue to do more of the same job, I, I'm not seeing where the logic is in that. I think changing the business model and making it more efficient and more effective is where we need to be looking.
1: Okay. So so that sounds like one thing. You let uh, Department of National Defense make the determination if the injury is related to service. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any other uh, seemingly simple changes that you think could streamline the process?
2: Well, I think, number one, uh, that would be as let the determination uh, uh, be made by the department is number one. Number two, holding the member, I think, is going to have a major impact on both sides. First of all, the member will have continuity of care, financial security. Those things will be in place for them and their families.
1: Oh, you mean keep paying them?
2: Keep Well, you know, we release them now and don't pay pensions for six or eight months, or we release them and they're going to Veterans Affairs and they don't get benefits for six or eight months. I mean, the individual is carrying this burden, and I think it should be an institutional responsibility. Mm -hmm. So if we did that, number one. Number two, if we held a member, Veterans Affairs Canada and the Insurance Manual Life are going to be better prepared to make sure they have everything in place. They'll have a little time that they can use to make sure that they've put the right path forward for this transitioning member. So I think it's not any one silver bullet that's going to solve it all, Libby, but it's going to be incremental changes on several of the processes we, we have. We can start to change the conversation today.
1: And uh, how have these thoughts been received?
2: Well, the response I received back from the department in September was that the recommendations had merit and would be given further consideration under the defense policy review. And I'm sure your, your listeners are well aware of defense policy review. The national call that went out to... Let's have a look at where we are and what we want to be. Uh, that is due to be released in the spring. Uh, again, uh, you know, I think that's going to be a, a very strategic, overarching document. I'm looking at it from a different uh, perspective. I'm looking at it from the operational side. What can we do today that's going to have a positive impact on these transitioning members.
1: Well, we can do nothing today if nothing is going to be looked at until there's an overarching review, right?
2: Therein lies the problem. I think the things I'm talking about today, I don't need a strategic template or a white document. What I need is some action. I think... Making some of these decisions today and implementing them is going to have a positive impact.
1: And who could make, could, could someone at Veterans Affairs make that decision, or do you need the uh, political level involved?
2: Well, I don't uh, make recommendations to Veterans Affairs. My recommendations are to the Canadian Armed Forces and Department of National Defense. And it's well within the purview of authority of the minister or the chief defense staff if they want to decide uh, that uh, they're going to hold a member that's within their authority.
1: Okay, uh, let's take a call from Sam in Brantford. Hello, Sam. Yes, hello.
3: Good morning. How are you doing?
1: Fine. How are you?
3: Not too bad. I have two issues. Uh, When people join the Army, are they questioned on every aspect of joining the Army? Because I've never been in the Army, but I, I can understand how people react to certain things while they're in the Army. But are these people checked before they get into the Army? Because once you're there and you can't handle the stress that some of this situation occurs, then we have a problem. And the second thing is, if this gentleman was suffering from PTSD, whatever it's called, why was he able to get the gun? And where
2: did he get the gun from?
1: Uh, uh, do you have any answers to that, Gary?
2: Well, I'm not going to speak to the second one, but this first you? part, you know, the recruitment process is a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a holistic approach they take to the interview and the processing of these new recruits into the system. Uh, what extent of psychological testing is done i i wouldn 't be able to speak to libby, but uh, you know I know that the recruitment process is sometimes also too arduous and difficult to get through, but uh, you know I think uh, there are other tools maybe that we should be looking at in the future going forward, like psychological testing and those types of things i, I don 't see how it would hurt, uh, but the process right now is uh, fairly intensive.
1: Mm-hmm. Um okay uh sam uh, I guess uh, uh the ombudsman doesn't know how uh, Mr. Desmond got the gun. Probably right. he may have kept it. Um, uh, we don't know.
3: Aren't they supposed to hand their equipment once they are released from the Army?
1: I would think so. Yeah.
3: I mean, I, I'm not perfect, but, I mean, why would a person join the Army and then, you know, take his belongings with them, including any rifles or, or ammunition or whatever? I mean, that should be handed over and say thank you so much for your service. I'll talk to you later.
2: Well, I, I think we're. Libby, if I may, I think we're speculating a little bit. Yeah. We don't know what.
3: No, no, I'm just asking. I'm not speculating. I'm just saying. Where a member where leaves get
2: the, the gun from? When the member leaves the Canadian Armed Forces, they have to turn in their kit, and then if they, if a, an arm if a was uh, leased to them, they, it has to come back.
3: Well, why does why didn't somebody ask some questions? Where did this gentleman get the equipment that he used to kill himself and his family?
1: I'm I'm assuming he probably got it legally. Uh, that. Can be a problem, but um, yeah, uh, we don't know, and uh, we will try to find out. How's I that? Really
3: appreciate it. Okay,
1: okay. thanks, Sam. Um,
2: Thank you. Bye bye.
1: Okay, uh, we are heading into a break. Gary Walborn, uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Uh,
2: is it the only thing I'd like to say, Libby, is I, I believe, I sincerely believe that we can make some small incremental changes that can start to have a positive impact going forward, and I'm. I'm cautiously optimistic that people are listening and we'll start to see something happen in the very near future.
1: Okay, let's hope so. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Libby.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.